just to kind of recap a little bit, it's been two weeks, so um, just want to kind of touch on what we talked about a couple weeks ago. So we, we've been a cut work this third weekend. We're really only at the beginning of Acts chapter 2. We're talking about church history. Uh, the book of Acts is our church history book. So we've kind of covered a lot before Acts, um, kind of intermingling the, the Gospels here. And so we talked a little bit two weeks ago about the church and how the church was born at the beginning of Acts chapter 2. Um, we see that in Matthew that Jesus gave Peter the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Keys are meant to unlock things, your door, your car. The, the, pur- the purpose of a key is to get into a place that is locked. If, you, if it's not locked, you don't need a key. If it's open access, you don't, keys have no purpose. And so you only need keys if you need access to something that has not yet been given, you've not yet been given access to. And so Jesus is giving Peter keys and not, he didn't literally hand him a set of keys and it's like, this is, you know, this one's marked Jews, this one's marked Gentiles, this one's marked Samaritans, use these at the right time. But he was prophesying and saying of what was to come and what Peter's ministry was to be. And so he says, upon this rock, I will build my church. And we talked about how the church, while Peter was used to as a catalyst for the beginning of the church, the church is not built on Peter. The church is built on Christ. Jesus Christ is the solid rock on which we stand. He is the foundation. He is part of the foundation. Um, he is the cornerstone. And it is also the apostles and the prophets that are part of that foundation. And I was reading that earlier today and realized again that in, in Ephesians 2, we are built upon the foundation of not only the apostles, but also the prophets, the Old Testament prophets. So the church is built upon Old Testament doctrine, Old Testament teachings. Um, you've got the, the major prophets, the minor prophets. Uh, Moses is called a prophet. David's called a prophet. There are many, many prophets in the Old Testament, and so the teachings of the apostles must line up with the teaching of the prophets and vice versa, and they must all line up with the teachings of Jesus because Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. And in ancient building practices, the cornerstone was the stone by which they used to determine the line up the building. Every other stone had to be lined up with that cornerstone or it was out of place, out of line, and had to be adjusted. You did not adjust the cornerstone. The cornerstone was the cornerstone. You adjusted everything else to line up with it. And so if you're trying to adjust Jesus' teaching to match up with your own doctrine or what you think the apostles meant or what the prophets meant, you're out of line. You're not using the right measurement. You, you take the teachings of Jesus, and then you look at the teachings of the apostles and the prophets, and as long as they all line up, you're on the right track. But if they do not, you're off, and you need to recalibrate what your, your understanding is. You need to dig a little bit deeper. So... Jesus Christ is the, is the solid rock. He is part of the foundation. He is the cornerstone, and everything must line up with his teachings. All the parables, everything. All the doctrines of Christ. So we talked a little bit about that. We got, we got into um, the timing of the outpouring of the Holy Ghost, right? So the, the day of, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, Acts 2-1, um, we often, I don't know about you, but having been raised in this and, and probably read Acts or heard Acts 2 hundreds of times, 
I think by now when I read through it, I, I probably read faster maybe than, than other books that I haven't read as much. So it's easy to kind of breeze through some of the details of Acts chapter 2. Uh, we'll get into that a little bit more in a minute with Peter's message. But the day of Pentecost, what was significant about the day of Pentecost? Well, the day of Pentecost is tied back to the Feast of Pentecost, which is tied back to the Old Testament. And so what was significant about this in the context of the outpouring of the Holy Ghost and the establishment of the church was there was a lot of people in Jerusalem at this time because the Jews were required to come to Jerusalem to worship for these feasts, for this feast. And so you had Jews from all over the known world. I mean, the Bible says that they were, they were from every nation under heaven, Acts 2.5. There were Jews from every nation. And I actually just um, found, looked, I was looking for a map. Because if you, you take this, I think it's 17 nations that it mentions um, that were present and heard uh, the 120 speak in their language. If you look at them on a map, they are literally all over the known world. I mean, Rome, if you look at Galilee, or the region of Israel and Rome, I mean, you might as well be literally across the other side of planet Earth. They were so far because they didn't have planes, they didn't have cars, they didn't have fast transportation. So getting to these places, like Paul's missionary journeys took a long time because they had to go by ship, they had to go by camel or donkey or whatever. It took a long time. So these these places might as well have been literally on the other side of planet Earth um, which the, with the distance. So if you look at this, the reason why this is so significant, the day of Pentecost, is because all these people from all over the world were in one place. One place. How easy is it to get the gospel out to the whole world when you've got the whole world coming to you, right? When you've got the whole world here, I mean, it was strategic. It wasn't just random that this day they prayed. The 120 weren't just like praying for 10 days and all of a sudden they just got in that vein and God's like, okay, now. They're so spiritual now. They're so ready. They've, they've so just dedicated themselves that I'm going to pour it out now. No, he had predetermined this was the day, this was the time, and this is the setting in which I will establish my church because it was meant to be a worldwide church. The church of the living God is a worldwide church for all nations, all people, every background, all of it, period. And the, they didn't know that at the time, because you'll, you'll see in just a minute how surprised they were. Um, well, we'll see later on. But they were, they were shocked when, all of it, when this went from the Jews to, being, to the Samaritans and to the Galileans, um, or the Gentiles, sorry. Those G words, I get mixed up. Um, so worldwide church. And so... Day of Pentecost ties back to Old Testament feast. There's significance there. I'll kind of move on, um, but it's interesting if you really if you dig into it a little bit. We talked about um, speaking in tongues and that they spoke in tongues as the Spirit gave the utterance. This was the miracle that drew these people to this place. They heard something they had never heard before, and they heard these people from this this small region of this one nation that were speaking in a language. That was their language. And again, it's hard for us to really, oh, that's no big deal. There are people that live in America that speak Chinese or they speak uh, Russian or they speak all these languages. Well, it's because we're, we can travel very easily. We can go back and forth. We can, we, it's very easy for us to get around this world. It was not the same for them. And so for somebody from Rome that was born in Rome, grew up in Rome, that was their hometown, 
And in Israel, the, the fact that these people were speaking their language was an absolute miracle, and they knew it was because that's why they were so amazed. So you've got to understand the context is it's not just, it wasn't as easy for them to travel. And so the fact that they heard these people that they had no association with or just the, Jew, the fact they were Jews was their only association, um, their only connection, which was a, was a big one. But language barriers were real, and that was why this was such a miracle, because there was such a language barrier. And so when the, the Holy Ghost was poured out and they heard them speak with other tongues, that was a miracle to them, and that's what drew their attention. Okay, So that's where we are in the story. Okay, Acts chapter 2, um, the Holy Ghost has been poured out. Um, and now this miracle has occurred. There's people from all over the world that are drawn to this one place at this very particular time. Um, and so then we have this opportunity, right? This opportunity arises for the truth to be proclaimed to the nations. And so who, who do you think gets the opportunity? The man who was given the keys to unlock the entry that opened the door for this truth to now be spread to the whole world. Peter was the one that unlocked the door here. There was a door that existed. There was a locked place. There was no entry point for these Jews to experience what they had just experienced, but Peter was about to unlock that door for them because he was given the keys. Um, And the fact it was Peter is also just amazing, and Peter is somebody that I think a lot of times we can identify with, mainly his struggles and his questions. and his, his passion, his struggles, his questions, there's a lot about Peter that we can really connect with. And then there's sometimes with Peter, you're like, huh? Man, come on, man. Like, what, what's going on? But it was, that's just, with, with people that, especially somebody like Peter, they have strengths and they have weaknesses. And Peter had his weaknesses. And it, while his strengths were very obvious and very profound and amazing, so were his weaknesses. So were his difficulties. I mean, he's not... I was trying to do the, the timeline in my head of from his denial to this point, and it was it was not much more than a month and a half, maybe two months, okay, from one of the worst, if not the worst moments of his entire life, denying the very one who had brought him out, taught him, loved him, accepted him, trained him, and he just says, I don't even know who that is. I mean, that level of, that, that moment, so he's not even two months from that. That's not a very long time. I mean, if you think back to some of the worst mistakes you've ever made, I'm not sure you were over it in that amount of time. You may have had some, some level of like recovery, healing, and all that, but it's two months is not a long time. And so Peter is, is, is in this place where he is now, the stage is set for somebody to proclaim this truth to these people because they are all gathering. And so Peter... We'll get to that in a second. So I want I want to kind of read, I want to read through Acts, most of Acts chapter two, and kind of just we'll touch things along the way as our primary kind of focus tonight. Um, and I'm going to read it in the New King James. It's a little bit easier to I think read and hear. Um, so I'm going to start with with um, going to restart in Acts chapter two, verse number five. If you're following along, um, we're going to kind of cover some of the things in the lesson. We're just, we're just going to read through and going to comment them as we go. So, Acts chapter 2, verse number 5. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Remember, these were all Jews, Jewish people. 
And so when Peter stands up to preach to them, they did have a common language, which is why Peter was able to preach to them and they understood him. Um, but the language that they were speaking in tongues was not this language. It was not their common Jewish uh, language. So, but they were all Jews. And so verse 6 says, And when, they, when this sound occurred, the multitudes came together and were confused. I would be too, because everyone heard him speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Galilee was a region of Israel, the nation of Israel. It was a very small region. The city of Galilee, uh, I had the, the privilege to be able to go to Israel in 2012 and go to the Sea of Galilee. And I'll be honest, it was not as impressive as I thought it would be from a size perspective. It is not very big. It is, you can see, it's like a lake. It's basically a lake. Um, but to think that small of a region, that small of an area that Jesus made a lot of his circuit, if you will, um, it's not a very big region. He wasn't going, you know, all over nations. He was going around a very small region. And so the region of Galilee was a very small region. It was a fishing region. Um, they had certain languages. They had their own kind of, again, every, like in the U.S., parts of the U.S. have their own uh, accent. You have your own, like, slang or common words, all that stuff. So it wasn't even just that they were Israelites or from the, this region. It was that they were Galileans. So it was even more amazing to these people um, that they were speaking their language. So Acts chapter, or chapter 2, verse 9, it, it begins to list these out. Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear, that we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. And again, if you, if you have a chance to get your hands on a map, look at this. It's all over the known world. But they were speaking. What they were speaking when they were speaking in tongues was the wonderful works of God. They were praising God. They were proclaiming the wonderful works of God. And when you speak in tongues, it's not just gibberish. It may sound like that to us because we don't understand it. But to God and to those, it's the wonderful works of God. You're lifting up God. You're praising God. You're exalting God. You're building up your holy faith. There's... There's so much power and, and amazing things in when you speak in tongues. And they observed that from the very beginning because they understood what they were saying. And like they're speaking the wonderful works of God, which is amazing to me. It's absolutely amazing. So verse 12, so they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mocking said, these are new. These are full. They are full of new wine. So. The miraculous has just happened. They are observing this miraculous, this, uh, this miracle. And so even with, that, even with all of that, there were still those who were confused, those who were curious, and they were mockers. Whenever you have a miracle of God occur, there's going to be mixed reactions because everyone there was in a different place in their own walk with God, where they were in their faith, where they were in their... What that day, what they were struggling with. What, so there was a lot of different mixed reactions um, and to the point people were even mocking them, saying, you're drunk. Like, there's nothing here that's a miracle. This, we're we're going to write you off. 
But which, what's interesting, if you look at Peter's response, he didn't fight back, if you will. He didn't mock back. He didn't even really address them in, in uh, anger or frustration. He actually just addressed their questions and addressed what they had to say because he knew God's more powerful. This message is more powerful than anybody's objections. It'll reach the curious. It'll reach the confused. It'll reach those that are mocking. It'll reach those that aren't hungry um, if, they'll, if they'll stay and listen long enough, right? It'll reach them. So I, all he did was just proclaim the word. So he was patient with them. He addressed their questions. So let's look at how he did that. Verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, it, since it is only the third hour of the day. Like he, he was addressing their, their mocking, but he was just, it's not what you think. It's only the third hour. They're not drunk. Let me tell you what's really going on. Had he fought back or maybe attacked them back, I really don't think they would have heard him from this point forward. They would have shut him off, shut him out, probably walked away, written him off. But he didn't do that. He just addressed them and said, let me tell you what's really going on. In verse 16, he answers those who said, whatever could this mean? He says, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he begins to quote or talk about some of the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophecy in Joel chapter 2. Verse 17, and, sh- and it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. So he's bringing the Old Testament, which they know, they understand, that when they heard this, they knew exactly what he was talking about. They could go back to their childhood when they memorized it, they could go back to their teen years when they heard it over and over again, but they didn't have the connection to what was the reality, and and Peter is bringing that prophecy into full view and saying, this, what you just saw, is what you've heard your whole life would happen. This moment right now is the fulfillment of what you've heard your whole life. And when that, their understanding matches their experience, that experience, revelation comes. What I know and what I've seen now come together, revelation, something begins to click for them. And this is what preaching is supposed to do. You take the word, you preach it, and people connect with it because they they hear it and they're beginning to understand. So I'm going to skip down to verse 22. He he continues on. Men of Israel, he begins to to kind of reason with them. He begins to to kind of, well, he begins to preach to them and talks about the man of Jesus Christ. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Listen to me. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. So he kind of starts at the beginning saying, you know who I'm talking about. You were there. You you watched him as you walked by heading to the market that one day. Look over and you see this man pulling a cripple off the ground. When you were looking out your window, you heard the, scr- the cries of, of joy, and you see a blind man running down the street. You were there. You saw those things. You saw the miracles that this Jesus of Nazareth did. You heard about it. Don't act like you don't know what I'm talking about. So he begins to take what they've seen, again, 
and begin to explain and expound on it. And so he's, he's starting to build up and proclaim the name of Jesus, right? Not another name, but the name of Jesus that was glorified while he was here on the earth. He goes on. Him, this Jesus of Nazareth, and you notice he uses Nazareth because Nazareth was a town. They knew where that town was, and they even mocked the fact that he came from such a small town, right? So he's saying that Jesus that you mocked, that Jesus that you disregarded from Nazareth, he's the one that did all these amazing things. He says, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, not by chance, not, not just because you decided, but by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. It was God's will for this to happen. You have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Wait a minute. Did the Jews nail Jesus to the cross? No. The Romans did. The Romans were the one that executed Jesus. They were the ones that took him and escorted him to that cross and threw him up on that cross and nailed him and killed him. It wasn't the Jews that did that, but here... Peter is taking that and he's placing that on the Jews because of what they did. They were the ones who initiated it. They were the ones that cried out for it to happen. The Romans were just the, the medium by which their will was executed. They may not have nailed, put his hands on that cross and nailed him to that cross, but they were the ones who initiated the whole thing. And so Peter takes that. He puts it right on them. He says, you did it. He was cruci- he's crucified and you put him to death. That, that guy, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. How amazing is that? It was not possible that this Jesus of Nazareth can be held by the pains of death. Every other human being to this point has been, but it's, it was not possible for Jesus to stay in that grave. It was not. And he, he again, he's... He, he punches that home, and then he brings back another scripture that they're all familiar with. Acts chapter 2, verse 25, he says, For David says concerning him, David, the psalmist, the one you all know and read and have memorized, he says, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my, fre- my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to seek corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. So he quotes this passage saying David was talking about Jesus in this passage. He's explaining and expounding the word to them as he's preaching. And then verse 29, he, he, he says, All right, men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, again, David was a prophet. Peter calls him a prophet here. And knowing that God has, had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ, the anointed one, that's what the word Christ means, to sit on his throne. He, David, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ. He's explaining the prophecy of David to these Jews who know it, backwards and forwards, just like Jesus did when, in those 40 days after he arose. He took the things the disciples already knew, he expounded, he explained, and gave them further revelation that led them to salvation. 
Peter, Peter, the one who, who saw that example, who experienced that drawing into truth, is now doing the same thing with patience, love, and proclaiming the word to these Jews. He's bringing them into truth using what they already know. It's a beautiful thing. Starting over, verse 31, he says, He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh seek corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all, I could even see him doing this, of we, looks around, we are all witnesses. We saw him. We experienced the risen Christ. We encountered the risen Christ. And this was the source of, of Peter's boldness, right here. This was the source. The reason he could stand so firm in front of all these people, speaking a new truth to them, a new doctrine, a bringing all of this together, accusing them, right? He's accusing them. He's expounding to them. I mean, they're back and forth. He's, he's taking their scriptures, explaining to them, and then saying, you crucified him, and all of this stuff. So he's doing all of this, but his the reason he could stand so boldly and proclaim this was because he knew it was true for himself. Without a doubt, he knew it was true. He saw Jesus raised from the dead, and he knew this is real. This is the real deal. This is the real stuff. And we, when we encounter the risen Christ, we see it for ourselves. It all becomes real, and we can have the same boldness in proclaiming that truth to other people because we have experienced it for ourselves. If Peter had not experienced that, he would have folded just like he did during his denial. He, he would have folded under pressure. He would not have proclaimed the way he did. But the difference was he had countered the risen Christ. Now he's filled with the strength of the Holy Ghost. I mean, let's go. Let's go. I mean, Peter is ready to go. And so he is proclaiming this and says, we're all witnesses. I'm telling you that right now. Verse 33, he says, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. The Holy Spirit is what you now see the evidence of and hear with your ears. That's what you're experiencing. And this is where new things begin to come up to them because they knew, again, they knew the scriptures they knew who Jesus was, Jesus of Nazareth. They saw the miracles. They knew he was crucified and died. They knew because of the rumors that there was rumors that the disciples had seen him from the dead. They knew all of that. They heard all of this. People talked. I mean, people talked. So they, they knew all of this stuff. What they didn't understand or didn't know was that all of this was all evidence pointing to this, this Messiah that they had longed for. They didn't, they didn't have that connection yet. And so Jesus, or Peter is kind of building them up to this point where he's telling what they already know, but then he's making the final connection and saying, this Jesus is the Messiah and the Holy Spirit, which Joel prophesied, is what you now see and hear. In verse 34, he says, for David did not descend and ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And here we go. This is his, this is his punchline, right? This is his right before altar call big moment, right? Chapter, verse 36, which we, I think if we start reading, a lot of times we may start reading here, or we may, like, again, read really, really fast through, like, the middle of Acts chapter 2. We're like, we're, let's get to the big, the big buildup. 
which is that here we are, verse 36. Therefore, because of all this stuff I just laid out for you, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Right? That's where we get Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, the ruler of all, Christ, the anointed one. You put them all together with Jesus. He is Lord. He is Christ. He is Messiah. He is Savior. He is the one who has come to set you free. This Jesus that I have proclaimed to you, he's the one. You crucified him, but he's the one. And so they, they heard all of this, and then Peter presumably stops, maybe pauses for dramatic effect. I don't know. But they heard him, and then this is the critical part that we all, we all have to come to this point right here where they were, this crowd. They had seen the miracle, and yet they were still not fully convinced. They were not convicted or pricked in their heart by the miracle. They were curious. They were confused. They were mocking, but they were not convicted because the word had not yet been preached to them. It is not the miracle that convicts or the the miraculous that brings someone to a decision point. It draws them, but it's the word that is preached. Hebrews 4.12, right? The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The word of God is what cuts through all of the resistance, all of the stuff, the confusion, the curiosity, the mocking. It cuts through all of it. And when that happens and it hits right here, you're brought to a point of a question. What should I do now? What do I do now? I've been exposed. I have... You're right, Peter. We crucified him. We did it. We cried out, crucify. We, we want Barabbas. We did it. So what do I do now? Do I just sit here and feel guilty? Or do, is there more to this? Do I sit here and just walk away knowing all my bad decisions and my mistakes? Thanks for exposing that to me. appreciate that. Right? Let me go back to Rome. Let me go back to Egypt. Let me go back to my hometown, just hanging my head the whole way. Is that where he left them? No. But he led them to that point where the word cut to the heart. And they were at that decision point. And then they were ready to hear what they needed to do because they initiated the question. They were ready. I'm convicted, Peter. What do I do now. But it was this all of, or most of Acts chapter 2, the message that Peter preached. This was him unlocking this door for them. Opening the way. Now, he opened the door for them. Now it's up to them to walk through it. The door's open. It wasn't open before now. He has now opened that door and now they must walk through it. And we in our own lives, are brought to places where God brings us to an open door. He reveals to us a truth. He reveals to us the the hardness of our heart, the sin in our heart, the mistakes we've made, all that. And that's all great. 
But then he leads us through the door of salvation, the door of healing, the door of restoration, the door, all of that. We must walk through it. And so Peter has experienced it. This group has experienced this wonderful outpouring of the Spirit. Now this group is hungry. They're ready. They're open. There may have been some people there that were still kind of, I don't know. They're probably in a crowd that size. I'd imagine there was. Really do. The Bible doesn't say. It just says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent. It's New King James. So in your mind, you're probably quoting it to King James. Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is to you, to your children, and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. The door is open to anyone. This is what you are to do in response to what you feel. That conviction, that guilt, here's your action steps. Here's what you need to do. And the Bible says in verse 40, And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So he lays out for them this action plan. But it didn't start with him just telling, walking up to them and saying, This is what you need to do. Now do it. Now obey me. No. The word of God was preached. Conviction came to the heart. They were brought to a place of decision. They were instructed on what to do, and they obeyed. Because you can't obey what you're not instructed to do. If you don't know what to do, you're not going to do anything. But if you are given instructions, now it's on you to obey. We have the word of God that we have been given instructions on what to do and how to live our life. In every area, in every way, every answer you need is in this book. We have been given the instruction manual. And so it is up to us to obey it. They didn't have this yet. They had their Old Testament. They had, the, they had the prophets. They had their scriptures. And Peter used those. We have Old Testament, New Testament. We have the complete picture, if you will. They didn't have that yet. This is the un- beginning of the unfolding of that complete picture. And so Peter, this is, this is where we get to in Acts chapter 2, verse 30. But I hope you can kind of see how we got there. Right, how Peter got them there and why it was so important. He did it the way that he did it. The Holy Ghost knew what those people needed, how they needed to get there. And so going through and looking at the way Peter preaches, uh, it's not your, I'm not, this is not me telling you how to preach, young man. I mean, you could probably take some lessons from it, but this is not me telling you how to preach. This is, there are principles here showing what, how powerful the word is to the hungry. Um, or even the curious, or even the confused. So, I'm going to kind of skip through here um, a little bit. Last week we talked about the Holy Ghost, and I want to talk a little bit about um, this thing called baptism that Peter mentions in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. So, as many of you may know, um, the word baptize that Peter's talking about uh, comes from the Greek word baptizo, which means to plunge, dip, or immerse. You can never, 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 never be interpreted to mean sprinkle. Never. Never. And these Jews knew that. In fact, 
if you look and you, and you study out where they were, the temple area, there was a lot of what they call what the ritual baths around the temple area where they were all baptized. There was, there was pools and, and places where they could just be immersed. There was not hoses that they were walking around getting sprinkled with. There were baths and, and where they washed, and there were ritual cleansing that, that happened at the, at the temple. So they, were, they knew what he meant when he talked about immersing. You need to be immersed in the name of Jesus. They understood what it meant to be cleansed or to cleanse. So, but the word can never be interpreted to mean sprinkle, ever. So Romans chapter 6 and Colossians chapter 2 talk about baptism being referred to as a burial. Um, if you like history, if you need historical uh, facts and backing, um, there's that, that too. Um, I don't know how to say this. The Schaff Hertzen? Schaff Hertzen Religious Encyclopedia says baptism was always a burial. Always. The command to baptize was always a command to immerse. Get this. The Catholic biblical encyclopedia, immersion was the oldest method employed, buried in him by baptism. That's from the Catholic biblical encyclopedia. Just saying. Page 61, paragraph 1, if you need to know. It's in your book. So history also points to the fact that baptism was immersion and buried him with him by baptism. We know that the name is important. We know that the name of Jesus is the one proclaimed and glorified. So baptism is to be administered in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's several instances in your book you can look through. In Acts chapter 8, the Samaritans were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. In Acts chapter 10, Cornelius and his household were baptized in the name of the Lord. We know Jesus is Lord and Christ, right? He has made him to be both Lord and Christ. So baptized in the name of the Lord, baptized in the name of Jesus, same thing. The Ephesian believers were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul and the Roman believers were baptized into Jesus Christ. There is one name, one saving name. And we are to be baptized and immersed and buried in that name. He already, Brother Bray already quoted it. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Not might be, not should be, must be saved. There was one name. Because this question happens, I think this question comes up, I've heard this question come up with several people. I think it's a very valid question um, to ask, and we should, we should know the answer to it. Is it wrong to be rebaptized? Is it wrong? Well, we have some examples in Scripture. Um, some people will quote Ephesians 4 and 5 and say, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. No one should ever be rebaptized. Well, that's not you're misunderstanding Scripture. Um, if you look at Acts chapter 19... Um, we can look at 12 men who were baptized under John's baptism, right? They were already baptized. They were baptized under what they knew. So, but his baptism was valid until the ministry of Jesus. And when Jesus came, and after Jesus died and was resurrected, the, we have the church baptism, and, the, and John's baptism was no longer the plan of salvation. So they were rebaptized 
in the name of the Lord Jesus. So it's a very valid question to ask, and it's very, there's a lot of people that have been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Ghost, um, and I think it's important, again, like Peter did with these, this crowd, meet them where they are, talk to them where they are, help them understand the scripture, because again, the, the scripture brings conviction, the scripture brings revelation, and the Bible will speak for itself on the topic. So if you don't fully understand why that's important, um, read through Acts and see the examples. You can look at um, principles. Again, this is meant to be a history book for us to read and to follow the example of. And in the book, book of Acts, we can see that they were rebaptized. Uh, they were baptized a second time. So, again, we, we talked a little bit about history. Um, so history referring back to people being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, right? Not just baptism by immersion, but in the name of Jesus. The Canny Encyclopedia of Religion says the early church baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus until the second century, well after the, the early church and all of the apostles and even their disciples were long gone, right? So history uh, or time and false doctrine creeps in, insert a little bit of false doctrine here, a little false doctrine there. Over time, the message gets perverted, the methods get perverted, and you start to see a change away from the original doctrine, um, but it wasn't until the second century, right? So well after those who were, had been with Jesus and knew what Jesus said, and even their disciples that they taught directly had all passed on. So it, it was perverted after a certain period of time. Again, this is the Schaff Herzog. Schaff is very popular. Uh, Religious Encyclopedia says the New Testament knows only the baptism in the name of Jesus. Only the baptism in the name of Jesus. Again, this is history we're talking. Not Bible's good enough for me, but this is history. So we look at the ingredients of this critical question that these people had. What do we do? Now that we've, we've encountered our guilt, we've been exposed for the sinners that we are, we feel the need to respond to this message in some way, we don't know what to do. They're Jews, so they know about God. They know what the Old Testament says. They know the truth, but what they know only got them so far. The law only got them so far. Their rituals and their following the commands and all of the traditions, they only got them so far. Those things could not help them with what they were experiencing in their hearts. You can do all of those things and make yourself feel good on the outside, all the outward expressions of your faith. But until something happens in here, you're not really changed. You're not really experiencing life. Until you're changed on the inside, you, you're not experiencing true life. You're not experiencing real salvation. And so they were convicted in their hearts, and, they, and Peter responded to them, and we need to pay attention to his response and repent be baptized, and receive the Holy Ghost. That is the only way we can experience real life. The only way. And I'll say, even for us, those of us who have had the Holy Ghost a long time, who have already been baptized, who have repented more times than we can count, we must never lose this internal question when we hear the preached word of God. What should I do now? If you lose that, you're going to become hardened, you're going to become religious, you're going to become 
stale in your walk with God. You have got to maintain a soft enough heart and a willing enough spirit to when you hear the convicting preach word of God, there's something in you that just, okay, I hear you, Pastor. What I hear you. The word, I, something in me says, yes, that's true, that's real. I, I'm exposed. Here I am. You've got to have that. And if you, I'll say, if you have lost that, if you, if you come to service after service and hear message after message, and you don't feel any of that, you need to go back to Peter's formula. You need to repent. You need to let the Holy Ghost wash over you. Let the, wa the water of the Word wash over you again. You need to let that Holy Ghost fill you again and, and revive that life in you again. So if you don't feel that drawing, convicting, inner just response to the Word, you need to find a place with God to get back to that place. Because you can, if you're closed off to the preached word of God, good luck being saved. I don't say that lightly or sarcastically, but I'm serious. If you can't be taught or preached to or challenged and feel like you still need to respond for yourself, you're, not, you're in a dangerous place. We must continue to have a heart that has that question when we hear the word of God. What should I do next? So I challenge you if, you, if you feel like you're at that place, and I've gotten there a time or two, I have, where I just, I come and sit in here and I'm, I'm just checked out a little bit. But I pray and, and pray to God, Lord, don't let me stray too far. Don't let me get too far. Get my attention. Even if I walk away from you, please don't walk away from me. So, Peter Starting his ministry, let the Holy Ghost speak through him in a way that is, is what those people needed, but it's also something that we pay attention to and realize that it was something that we can look to and, and know that God was in it because it aligned with his teaching. And Peter preached the truth and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it all started right here. The church was born Revival began, and we'll get further into Acts the next couple of weeks um, and see how the church begins to grow. This is the birth of the church. Here we are. And from this point, they grow and expand, and it's, a, it's an amazing thing. So we'll talk about that uh, next week. Let's pray. Father, we love you tonight. I thank you for your truth. I thank you for your word. God, you're so good to us. You have given us a road map an instruction manual, God, a beautiful truth that will get us to heaven. You will get us to heaven, God, if we receive your engrafted word into our heart, God, and let it become part of who we are and change us from the inside out. God, I pray tonight that every person here and watching online, God, would, would have a softness that returns to their heart, Lord, that, that when they hear your preached word, in their ears, God, that something inside of them responds. Faith rises up. God, conviction pierces their hearts so that they can ask the question, what should I do now? What should I do next? God, and lead them on a path towards truth and be closer to you, Lord, because we want to be like you. We want to be like you when you come back for your church. God, we want to look just like you. And God, if we can maintain that softness in our heart, we, I believe, Lord, every one of us will be 
looking like you when you return, God. And I pray tonight that you would touch each one of us. I pray your blessing upon every person here. Grace, mercy, and peace be upon them tonight. We love you and trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.